we've uh, been on pause, at least for the evening service, um, for the story series. Hopefully you're still reading in, in, in uh, either your Bibles or the story books. And I'm going to dig back a little bit to catch us up to speed, but hopefully it'll just be a smooth, um, a smooth flow right into our passage. But I, I will look back a little bit to get us, get us back into uh, remembering the storylines, some of the big sweeping themes that we've been looking at for the first uh, four weeks, and then we took week five and week six off from the evening service, and then we're picking up, we're kicking off week seven or chapter seven tonight. So Joshua 1, 1 through 9, and then 6, 1 through 5. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aide, Moses, my servant is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the great sea in the west. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. And as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous. Because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Joshua 6, 1 through 5. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go go up. Every man straight in. This is God's word. Whomever doesn't think that God is a relational, personal God who desires to be known by his creation has not read the Bible. If there's anyone here this evening who is investigating Christianity, or at least curious about the Christian faith, let me start off by saying... The God who created the expanse of the universe on the macro side and knit us together on the micro side, one of his biggest desires is for us, his creation. 
If we look all the way back at the first couple of chapters in Genesis, the first book in the Bible, like we did uh, a few, uh, you know, a month or so back, we find that in the awesomeness, in the simplicity, in the beauty of the creation account, we see that God places humankind at the center of everything. Those first paragraphs of Genesis show us three special details about how human beings fit into the rest of creation. First, God created us in his image and his likeness. We're created with the potential to be good, to do good, to create good. We're created in his image and his likeness. Second, God puts us in charge of his creation. He hands over the family business, so to speak. Not in a, you know, do all the grunt work sort of way, but in a partnership, in a caretaker sort of way. We're put in charge of creation, allow it to flourish and to bring out the best in it. But even better than being made in God's image and being in charge of his creation, we were created to know God. And if you remember, if you were here when we, we uh, looked at this passage, Genesis 3.8 says this, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as we, he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The Lord called to the man, Where are you? It's an incredible picture. Those first interactions we see with God and humankind is God taking a walk in the garden in the late afternoon, hoping that Adam and Eve would join them, would join him. It's a very innocent picture. It's a very intentional picture. Now, we know very well that God knew Adam and Eve were hiding and why they were hiding. They had just eaten the forbidden fruit. But Genesis goes out of its way to show us that God's personal. He's relational. He may be the author of everything in existence, but he wants to be in relationship with his people. As intimate a relationship as three people going for a walk in the afternoon. This is key for our passage, you'll see. We are created by God and for God. We are created by God and for God. If we look all the way back at the beginning, we also find that one terrible trend that continues on throughout the history of the human race. And this terrible trend is this. Our default mode is to think that we know best. We want to do things our own way. We have a hard time fully relinquishing control to God. And therefore, we have a hard time fully living in faith. It starts in Genesis 3, you know, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God says, don't eat from it. The evil one says, surely God's holding out on you. And then Eve and Adam, in that order, say, hey, I think my way is best. Give me that fruit. And they eat it. And in swallowing the I-can-do-things-my-own-way bite, the two humans swallow guilt and shame. They begin a cycle of selfishness and sin that leads to blame and betrayal and eventually murder and envy and all kinds of strife. This is the first example of a pattern that plays out as regularly as the sun coming up and the sun setting. But here's the serious part. It doesn't just play out in people who... Don't claim to follow God. It plays out in the very people who say that God is their God. It plays out in the hearts of the very people that put their faith and trust in God and follow Him. It happens so many times 
in the Bible, just early on, and we're only up in, uh, to Joshua. It happens to Adam and Eve, and then remember Cain and Abel? Cain says, I can offer up a sacrifice any way I want, and then gets into a jealous rage when God rejects his offering, but accepts his brother Abel. It happens to Moses, one of the most prominent men in the Bible. God says, speak to the rock. Moses strikes the rock twice. And in his disobedience, Moses gets sidelined from entering the promised land. That's pretty huge. And it happens in our Bible readings uh, uh, this evening. Not particularly in the, in, uh, the one we just read, but in the one I'll, I'll get to. We're going to look at two, uh, the Israelites' two approaches to the promised land. This is the land that God had promised them many years earlier. And in these two events, these two approaches into the promised land, we see two key principles that will keep the I'll do things my way syndrome from repeating so often in our own lives. If we could see these key principles and apply them. Now, if you don't think you have succumbed to the I'll do things my own way syndrome, just wait. And by the end of it, hopefully I'll show you that it's really the natural default. It's, it's like gravity. Our natural default is to think, even though we believe in God, we profess Christ as Lord and Savior, our default is to do things our own way. First, let's look at um, the people of God's first attempt at entering the promised land. And we didn't read this, but I'm just going to read, and you can follow along if you want, excerpts from Numbers 13 and 14. Number chapter 13, verse 1, starts off by saying, The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. So Moses sent out the twelve spies. They check out the land for 40 days and come back and report this. They come back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community, and they reported to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. And Goliath was also a descendant of Anak. Then Caleb, jumping down to verse 30, silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we certainly can do it. There's some faith. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. The Nephilim is a fascinating story in Genesis about it. They're the mighty men, the men of great renown. Um, we seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we look the same to them. And I know how they felt. They felt like just how I felt on my first Sunday here at Faith Church. <laughs> Let me just continue a little bit further about this wrestling. Should they go into the promised land or not? That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. There's some serious emotion going on here. 
all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said, if only we died in Egypt or in this desert, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? Now, I hope she's not going to listen online, but she sounds like my mother-in-law, always thinking about the worst-case scenario. And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Joshua and Caleb try one more time to persuade the people. They say, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid. Let me ask a, a few, few questions. What is the major thing that's keeping the Israelites from entering into the promised land, the land that God had swore to give them? What's the number one thing? Yes, fear. And can you blame them? The scouting report comes back. These people are huge. The walls are high. The men are mighty. The cities are fortified. And here we are, this almost nomadic people. You can't blame them for feeling the emotion. Fear is a legitimate emotion. But you can blame them for this, for feeding the emotion. You can blame, you can blame them for feeding the emotion and then acting on the emotion. You can't blame them for being afraid. It's a natural response to daunting circumstances. But you can blame them for feeding it, pouring fuel on that fear, and then acting on it. This is coming, they're coming off one of the, the most miraculous displays of divine intervention ever recorded. Well, at least up to this point. Remember the ten plagues. And on the tenth plague, they have to put blood on the doorpost because God sends the death angel to come. And that secures their release. And the Egyptians say, go. And the million plus folk head out out of Egypt. Pharaoh changes his mind and they're pinned between his chariots and army and the dead in the Red Sea. But God parts the sea, puts the army in confusion so they can't follow. And the Israelites walk through on dry land. God closes up the sea and swallows up the Egyptians who are chasing them. Amazing, amazing rescue. And then they run out of food. God sends manna and quail. Now, granted, they hadn't been in a relationship with God for very long, but they have seen God do the impossible on their behalf. And God saves them several times in many miraculous ways. But when they see their circumstances and feel their fear, it's like they don't even want to believe God to be God. 
They know God is sending them into the promised land. They know it's the promised land. They don't even want to believe God to be God. If it's if they didn't want their faith to be exercised at all. Does that description ever fit us? Do you ever not want God to be God in your everyday life? Because it could put you out on a limb or could put you in the uncomfortable zone. Do you ever want your faith to not be exercised out of your normal expected expression of faith? So what happens? Only Joshua and Caleb want to move ahead and the people threaten a a revolt. Numbers 14.7. Oh, sorry, 14.10 it says, but the whole assembly talked about stoning them. They wanted to kill Caleb, Joshua, and Moses. And then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. And the Lord says to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will these people treat me with contempt? Now, that's not a phrase that we use, contempt. You're treating me with contempt very often. I dug into the Hebrew and really tried to come up with a good um, English paraphrase. And this is what I came up with. How long will you keep blowing me off? Their consequence is they are forbidden to enter the promised land. Every adult except Joshua and Caleb will not enter in. Only their children will be allowed to enter in. And so that trip that would take about 11 days turns into a 40-year trek through through the desert wilderness until all the adults have died off and the people have learned to trust God a little bit more. All because of fear. They gave in to the emotion and it short-circuited their trust, their belief, their faith. Their unwillingness to believe that God is bigger than their circumstances caused every adult to miss the incredible blessings and experiences and rest that God had in store for them. But we know the second attempt is a little more successful, right? Let me just read bits and pieces of our reading again, now that you know the context a little bit more, and try to hone in on God's fatherly approach to them. Joshua 1.1, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan into the land I'm about to give them. No one will be able to stand up against you all. Uh, Sorry, against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Can you see how relational God is? 
We are created by God for God. Can you see how patient and fatherly he is? He knows that the people are still huge. The Israelites still look like grasshoppers. The walls are still high. The cities are still fortified. Nothing has changed in the promised land. And so God immediately helps speak down their fear. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and very courageous. I am with you. I will be with you. You will succeed. And so the Israelites thankfully passed the emotional test. They silenced their fears, and they gear themselves up to follow God. But then God hits them with the second biggest hurdle that comes when you're trying to overcome the I-can-do-it-myself syndrome. And that second biggest hurdle is God's seemingly wacky plan. Listen to it. Okay, here's a massively fortified city with huge, thick walls and people that are huge. And God says, this is what I want you to do. Set up out of camp, take seven priests, seven trumpets, walk around the city blowing your horns, and then head back to camp. I can imagine thinking, Joshua thinking, okay, okay, but then what do we do? God says, do it again, and again, and again, and again, and again. For six days. And then on the seventh day, walk around seven times. Blow the trumpets, have everyone shout, and the walls will crumble. Think about that for a moment. If you were a general and you were strategizing, wouldn't you think of something different? The Israelites are able to shrug off their fear and pass the first test. Then God tests them again. He doesn't give them any magnificent military tactics. No battering rams, no wall climbing equipment, no catapults or anything like that. No, walk around the city blowing your trumpets and then head back to camp and then do it the next day and do it the next day for six days. And then on the seventh day, do it seven times. I know many people, including Joshua, was probably thinking, I hope God knows what he's doing. But you know what? I think that's exactly what God wanted him to ask. I hope God knows what he's doing. Did they find out? Yes. Did God know what he was doing? Yes. It was awesome. They walked around for six days, and then on the seventh day, they walked around, blew their trumpets, everyone shouted, and the walls toppled. These huge, massive, fortified walls came crushing down. And the city was theirs. Their belief and trust became incredibly stronger that day. God often puts those two elements in our lives for some good reasons. He often puts us in places, in situations that our circumstances look all out of whack. And our fear levels shoot up, and our anxiety level shoots up. Our worry. How can, how can we possibly do this? How can we possibly get through this? 
Why does God do that? So we can learn to trust him instead of our emotions. And then, and this is the part that I see the wisdom, God's wisdom, but man, my, my personality kicks against this. He often calls us to do seemingly wacky things because in doing that, in, in going against conventional wisdom, we experience him and his power is made, made evident. I get, when I, um, I was first getting into ministry, I was just married. We were church planning. Um, we, uh, we weren't bringing in a lot of cash. My dad's an accountant, and, and uh, um, he was looking at our, our budget, trying to help us a little bit. And uh, now, he has since become a, a really strong Christian and would, would not have advised this back then. But, but at this stage in our life, 15 years ago, he said, you're giving too much money to the church. He said, how are you going to be able to, you know, get a solid foundation if you're not, you know, saving like you could? If you're not uh, doing this, doing that, doing... You need to set a good foundation. I had to go against parental wisdom. I had to go against uh, secular wisdom in in cutting that tithe check. But I did, and, and through the crazy highs and lows of church planning, we never lacked... Another, and I know we're running out of time, but I want to flesh this out a little bit. I was a freshman in college, about 18 or 19, and I'm reading a Christian magazine. And all of a sudden, I come to this advertisement, and it's for Christian Outreach International. And it's a, um, it's a two-month mission trip to the Ukraine. Now, the communism had just fell in, ni- in 91, and, and, and uh, sorry, um, I, I didn't word that right. 91, the doors opened up in, in, in the Soviet Union, and uh, um, communism was still, lo- you know, prevailing. But uh, um, they opened their doors, and there was an opportunity for churches to come in and, and mission trips to come in, and that... That uh, little article caught my eye, and I really felt God saying, I want you on this trip. And I immediately thought of all the things that my, my parents were going to say. Not only would I be gone for two months, that mean I couldn't make, I couldn't earn a wage for those two months, but I would have to fundraise money, so, or kick in some, you know, whatever, whatever savings I had. So financially, it was a dumb move. <laughs> Safety-wise... Groups were just starting to go in. The safety was up, you know, seemingly up in the air. And, and, and you know, no parent in their right mind would want their kids to go into uh, the, the former Soviet Union just after the fall. And so I had to buck conventional wisdom because through that advertisement, I felt God grab me saying, I want you on that. And let me tell you, because I did, and the financial things turned out okay, I was able to get money for books and whatever other means, and I was able to fundraise the trip, and, and all, the, all the conventional wisdom stuff fell into place. But for me, it was a foundational trip, and it was on that trip that I felt God saying, I want you in full-time ministry. When God works in our life, we're going to have to overcome our emotions 
And then we're going to have to overcome conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom says, don't go up to your coworker and say, hey, you've, what's wrong? Is there anything I can pray for? Conventional wisdom says, keep your faith to yourself and just do your own work. But when God calls you, are you going to be willing to step out? When God calls you, call, calls you to do something wacky that your accountants would say, don't do, or that your parents might say, don't do, or that your, your children might say, hey, that's going a little bit overboard. That's being a little fanatical. That's being a, you should really think that, you know, overthink, uh, rethink that. We learn about God by reading about him, but we experience God when we exercise our faith. Do we need faith when we play it safe? No. Do we need faith when we can do it on our own? No. We still have intellectual faith and trust in God. We need faith when we're going up against things that we can't do on our own, that cause our emotions to flip out, that cause us to feel out of control. And when we feel out of control, that's when we realize that God is in control. We can say we have faith day after day, year after year, until we die. But unless we trust God and move when he says move, even though it may seem ridiculous, even though it may trip our fear meters off, we're not living fully the faith life he's calling us to. Living in faith will, without exception, cause us to go against Conventional wisdom. See, we like Adam, like Cain, like Moses, like the rest of the people of God have a propensity to the, I'll do things my own way. But I've learned this the hard way that sometimes, sometimes I get it right, sometimes I get it wrong, that God's way is the best way. When I was can candidating, I told this story. And you still, hired, you still extended me a call anyways. But we were just church planting, just on the ground, um, just starting to get small groups up and running. And there was a, uh, I was driving down a, a main drag, and there was a mall and businesses on my left and right, and there's a lot of stop signs. It was kind of like a York Road. And, or maybe Butterfield or Roosevelt's probably a better... A better uh, and I came to the, a stop light, just turned red, and I look over, and there's 20, maybe 30 people gathered. And it's the site where just the evening before, two teenagers had been drag racing, and one of them hit a telephone pole and died. And these teenagers were just sort of mulling around, you know, around the spots. They looked very hapless. Um, and there were some adults there, too. And, and I, I felt something inside say, go over and pray with them. And all of a sudden, like, I, just a million things don't stick your nose into other people's business. What are you going to say there? You're going to walk up there and say, hey, can I pray for you guys? And all these things just came into my mind, and the light turned green, and I drove off. I still regret that. And I think, man, what if I would have came over there and said, hey, this is a horrible event, but God is here, and God is with you, and he cares about you, and prayed with them, and helped them deal with their grief. 
God calls us to do things that are uncomfortable. He causes us to do things that make us sweat. He causes us, uh, he asks us to do things that will make us uncomfortable. Will we be willing, like the Israelites, to step over the Jordan and enter the promised land? Will we be willing to follow God's spirit where he's calling us? It's a hard thing to do. But when we say no because of our fear, when we say no because it sounds ludicrous, I have a really ludicrous story I can't share right now because we're running out of time, but ask me about it afterwards. When we say no because it sounds ludicrous, we miss out on the blessings that God has in store for us. Someone once said the most important thing a person can think about, the most important thing a person thinks about is what they think about God. Okay? The most important thing a person thinks about is what they think about God. Do you think that God is a God of the ordinary? And he doesn't ever want you to step out in riskiness, step out in faith. I don't think so. From cover to cover, this book is full of examples of God calling people out of their comfort zone to sideline their emotions, forget the wackiness of the strategy or plans that God is giving them, and to go and follow in obedience. As we head into Lent, my biggest prayer is that God would clearly alert me to these situations. It would be awesome if every morning through Lent, we woke up and before we left our house, we said, God, this day is yours. I am yours. Help me to see what you want me to do and give me the strength to do it. I think if we prayed that every morning, something awesome would happen to us throughout the week. And it would strengthen our faith in God. And it would give us a fabulous testimony to bless others with later. Are you willing to do that with me? God, I am yours. This day is yours. Help me to see where you're moving around me so that I can join you. It's a dangerous, dangerous prayer. It may cause you to walk around a fortified city blowing a trumpet six days in a row then seven times the next day. But isn't that what faith's about? It's about following God, not just doing it in our own way.